because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, I've done several episodes so far about the uh, terrible blackouts in Texas, done a little bit of what led up to it, uh, done a little bit about just sort of what, what were the near-term uh, causes of it, uh, but we haven't really done an update on it in a while. And so uh, I wanted to bring on a guest who could help us understand the big picture, including what's happening in Texas going forward, because it's been out of the news. And I think there are a bunch of really bad ideas in Texas right now and a few good ones. And I want help sorting those through so that we can do what we can to advocate the right path forward. So here to join me as one of the people who's helped me most think through these issues. His name is uh, Brent Bennett. He's from the Texas Public Policy Foundation. He's a, uh, well, I believe he's a physics background. We'll talk about that. Uh, but he's in the last several years become one of my favorite energy experts. So Brent, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you, Alex. Glad to be here. It's an honor. Right. So you and I met a few years ago when you were sort of just getting started on energy policy. You really uh, ramped up very quickly. But uh, yeah, so I, I'm curious, I don't know if I've ever asked you this, like how did you get into this and, and what was your background uh, before this? Yeah, so I grew up in Midland, Texas, kind of as a son of an oil and gas entrepreneur. Uh, my dad actually quit his day job the year I was born, which was 1986, also a terrible year in the oil business. And uh, throughout my life, really, the, the business was pretty slow. Um, you know, this is obviously the days of peak oil and, and uh, everyone thought that, you know, the business was kind of in terminal decline. Uh, and so for, for someone like myself, who was, you know, enterprising enough to, to leave Midland, I, you know, the, the oil business was not really a, a business that seemed to have much of a future, at least in the United States. Um, and so I, I went off to college and studied physics. I was a science geek. Uh, studied physics and uh, was particularly interested in fusion. Um, also, uh, was interested in in chemistry, and in, in graduate school came down to University of Texas down here in Austin, which is where I live now, and uh, got a PhD in material science at the University of Austin, uh, studying batteries, uh, battery chemistry, uh, particularly batteries for utility scale energy storage, storing wind and solar. And so that was uh, that was kind of my uh, my path that I found my way towards. Um, but at the time, while I was in college in the late 2000s, uh, you know, the business was starting, the oil business was starting to change. And now, uh, starting about 2010, you know, of course, the everything has just been completely different, um, just with the, the, the shale revolution and, and all the incredible prosperity that's brought. Um, so it, it, it's been, a, it's been interesting to see how things have changed. My first, my first time that I came to Austin was actually uh, 1998, when oil prices were, you know, in the in the teens, and uh, per barrel, we were, right? Yeah, per barrel. Yeah, in the teens per barrel. Yeah, and uh, and so we were, uh, you know, we were advocating for. This is my first exposure to politics, and really was we were advocating for, you know, reducing the severance tax uh, on on oil prices because you know oil was so much cheaper than water, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was an, it was an interesting comparison then compared to now where, you know, obviously we have enough, you know, domestic production to satisfy not only our needs, but to start exporting oil, which is something that was inconceivable when I was growing up. Uh, so it's, uh, so it's interesting now to come back into the oil business by way of policy, uh, which I did primarily to, in order to avoid leaving Texas, no offense to California, but, 
I was uh, a lot of my job opportunities were out there uh, after college. I actually did get a job with a startup here in Austin selling battery materials, but that didn't last very long. Uh, you know how startups are, and so um, I, I was I was you know looking for other things I could do uh, in order to stay in Austin. I was about to get married, and my wife is in Texas politics, and her whole career has been in Texas politics. Not in energy at all. Um, she's mostly been in, been in healthcare, but. Um, she recommended that I, that I uh, take a chance on, on trying politics. And I have some familiarity with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Um, our family has been supporters of the foundation for many years. Uh, one of our common friends, Bud Brigham, has been a family friend for many years. Uh, so he, so I was, uh, saw this op opportunity to join the Life Power team, and here we are. Uh, just uh, now I'm almost three years into the job and uh, really enjoying it. So. It's been a pleasure, especially getting to meet so many people like yourself and uh, people that I just never, uh, never had an opportunity to meet had I not taken this job. So, Great. Yeah, well, you've been a, a real asset to the, the world of energy, which definitely needs more, <laughs> uh, more pro-freedom, pro-energy thinkers. So just one question about mm -hmm. your background. How did the material science, particularly utility scale battery stuff, how did that inform your subsequent thinking about energy? Because most people think, oh, if you went into that field, then you would be wildly enthusiastic about solar and wind and know that they can power the whole world. Just, we just stick a bunch of batteries next to them. <laughs> yeah. And, and I actually, um, you know, as a, as a physics major in college, I was trying to figure out, okay, what, what am I going to do? I know I needed to go to grad school uh, for something uh, as a physics major, especially when I was graduating in 2009, the job market was terrible. So, um, so I thought, okay, this is something where I can apply my, uh, apply my science knowledge in a you know, real engineering field, right? It's really kind of at the intersection of science and engineering. And so I, uh, and at the time, uh, you know, I was, I was doing, uh, I was actually working, I was actually doing a, an internship with a private equity firm and was doing a lot of research into kind of the, you know, the emergence of solar and wind and what are we going to need uh, if we're going to have more solar and wind, right? It's not just solar panels and wind turbines, but what else are we going to need? Uh, and batteries kept coming up as being the linchpin to, to what was needed to make those technologies grow, right? And so I thought, okay, this is, this is something that's going to be coming up, so I need to, this is something I can go study. Uh, I'm really fascinated with the technology, still love the technology of batteries. I mean, I, I, I still consult in that area, still love working at it. But, you know, when you, when you start working in it, you come to realize, okay, here's what the technical limitations are, Right. Um, and, and here's how you, you learn how the industry works, right? And, and you see how disconnected that is from the beliefs and the policy that's being enacted, right? I mean, batteries are a very slow moving field. Um, you know, lithium ion battery was, you know, really invented in the 70s. Um, the, current, the current iteration was uh, kind of brought up during the 80s. Actually, one of our professors at Austin invented one of the parts of the modern lithium ion battery. Um, it wasn't commercialized until the 90s, right? So there's this 20-year development timeline that exists for most battery technologies. And people don't really understand that. People somehow have this impression that batteries are like semiconductors uh, and that somehow every two years, you know, you're, you're turning over your, products, your product line and, and you have this really rapid development. And it's completely different physics and chemistry when you're talking about batteries. Um, so I, really, I came to realize that there's kind of this, this misplaced uh, idea that somehow batteries are going to transform the world in a matter of a short manner of time. I mean, they get better over time, but at a rate of like 5% a year. 
so that's, you know, that's kind of what we're seeing. And so I realized that that's, uh, that's something that needs to be addressed as I'm in this current job that I'm constantly uh, really hitting on that point of, you know, we got to look at what batteries actually are and not just try and compare them to, you know, uh, all kinds of other different technologies that they're not. You know, and basically it's, it's interesting because people like, I think people who believe that you can just make things happen by wishing like to use semiconductors because yeah. it's such a unique thing that you have, you know, Moore's law mm -hmm. with the, you know, doubling of the efficiency of something or, you know, every 18 months or two years or whatever it is. But that's yeah. like a very, that is a unique phenomenon in terms mm -hmm. of, I mean, I, I mean, like hard drive space is kind of like that. Like you have these exponential type phenomena, but they're very unusual. And so part of, uh, it, it's just interesting how, because we have a couple of them, people who just think, oh, whatever I wish should be able to happen. Uh, so yeah. if I want everything to be solar and wind, then everything should be solar and wind. And that should somehow be cost effective, even though if it was cost effective, people would probably already be doing it on their own with it. But they just think, oh, like, so they make up, oh, well, batteries, they'll be just like the microprocessor. They'll be just like my hard drive. And there's no reality check of, okay, we've had batteries for a long time, but battery cars for over hundred years, like they progress but they don't progress that much. And I think there's no reason to think they can do what people imagine they can do in terms of basically free storage of electricity, of unlimited electricity. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, Moore's law is not, it's not a physical law or principle. It's a business model that's built on uh, the unique physics of semiconductors, right? So there's nothing, there's nothing that uh, makes that apply to anywhere else. There's no underlying physical principle, right, behind behind Moore's law, except that semiconductors are, you know, enable you to develop the technology in that way. And even then, even now we're reaching the limits of that, right? As you get down the atomic scale, um, it's becoming harder and harder to keep that business model going, right? So uh, with, with batteries, it's kind of, with batteries, the, the Moore's law is again, like I said, about 5% a year, you got a geometric growth rate of about 5% improvement in energy density and other factors. It's more, it's more like how, you know, how cars improve uh, bit by bit every year, right? I mean, that's really a more apt description. Um, and there's also physical limits, right? We only have so many elements in the periodic table. Uh, it's, I mean, batteries will never approach the energy density of gasoline uh, unless we invent completely new physics and chemistry because it's just not possible within the confines of the periodic table for batteries to be that energy dense. It's not to say that we can't get batteries to the point where they're useful for electric vehicles and they're, and they're inexpensive enough for electric vehicles, but uh, it, it's, it's like you said, it's not unlimited. There's not, uh, there's not this uh, idea that we hit, there are limits to what can be done, right? I like the idea. It's a really good point. I never put it that way. It's just that Moore's law is not a physical law and it's probably a bad mm -hmm. thing to even call it any kind of law, but it's definitely not yeah. a, a physical <laughs> law. And you know, one way to think no. of it is like proper economic ideas in many ways derive from like recognizing physics and chemistry. So if you think about just the idea mm. of using oil for transportation, you know, it's based on the energy density or the chemical energy density of oil, which can store a lot of chemical energy in a relatively small space. And it can be burned in a kind of continuous way where you don't have to be like shoveling coal and my, you know, monitoring a coal pile or that kind of, but it's like those, that economic idea of using oil comes largely from the physics of it. And also the, you know, the geology of it, just how much there is. But now yeah. people think, they think, oh, I have an economic idea. And so the scientists will make it happen. 
and there's no recognition of, oh, there are physical laws and all the scientists can do is identify them and maybe they can identify new ones. Uh, but if they haven't identified one, you don't just get to make up that they will identify one. Like the, the yeah. economic innovations come from working with the physical laws, not like making them up. And I think that's, it's this total inversion of a scientist. Cause it's like, no, a scientist is a magician who can make any arbitrary idea of mine happen. I think that's like the Elizabeth Warren thing. She'll say, you know, like, oh, I'm confident the scientists can do it. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and policy based on, you know, hope is not, is not good policy. I mean, you look at the way we've improved our, our air quality so much in the United States over the last 70 plus, 50 plus years, right? Um, we've, we've, we've followed, uh, in, uh, we followed our policies with the technology, right? The catalytic converter was invented before the Clean Air Act, right? Um, you know, pollution controls for power plants were invented before they were implemented, right? And now we're, we're at this point where our air is so clean that we're ha if we're going to if we're going to go further than what we've gone, we either have to a invent things that that don't exist. We have to just come up with things to meet the standards, right? Um, this is kind of the realm of the clean power plant, right? Com coming up with carbon capture technology that's not commercialized uh, in order to meet the standards, or we just shut it all down, right? And so that's that's again an example of how this this kind of this idea that somehow we can just magically come up with stuff to meet our policy goals is just infecting so much of, of energy and environmental policy. The other thing I would point out, you, you mentioned there's these options of, you know, you can invent something new, or you can shut it down. I think ultimately the motive behind the leaders is is shutting it down. Uh, and you, yeah. I make this point that, you know, I think the modern environmental movement is really an anti-human impact movement. So just any human impact on nature they think is immoral and must somehow be self-destructive. And if that's your perspective, you'll oppose every form of energy because energy just allows us to impact nature. That's the core of what it does. It does physical work on nature to transform and manipulate nature. And you see this mm -hmm. with the progression, like the so-called environmental movement, supposedly supporting nuclear and then opposing it, and then supposedly supporting natural gas and then opposing it. And you're seeing this with solar and wind. They're thinking, oh my gosh, it turns out that using really dilute energy takes up a lot of space and use a lot of materials. We didn't sign up for that. And then you have like the Michael Moore, you know, planet of the humans. It turns out batteries involve mining. Like they don't actually come yeah. from the sky uh, spontaneously and they're not health food. Like you can't eat them, nor can, you know, other other things in our environment uh, eat them. And so that's, that's I think, and I was um, in, in my next book, Fossil Future, I have this anecdote about like geothermal and deep geothermal, which is kind of a cool, technology because regular geothermal like you 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 need it to be pretty hot at places pretty near the surface which is unusual like occurs in iceland mm -hmm. but, but it's there's reasons why they do it in iceland but deep, geoth deep geothermal if you go down really deep then it's a lot hotter there and so you can potentially you know have a continuous source of heat that can that can uh, generate electricity and other things uh, but i'm just thinking like imagine that becomes remotely viable what is al gore gonna say like when we're doing yeah. fracking on geothermal, you already do fracking with different kinds of geothermal. Like you literally do fracking on geothermal miles deep. You think Sierra Club is just going to give us all a round of applause? They're like, no, how dare you're impacting underground? That's bad. So it's always this, the enthusiasm for these, like is always a phony enthusiasm. So it's this combination of like, yeah, we're going to make something up and promise that that'll work, but really they don't care. At least the leaders don't care if it works. 
they just care about destroying the existing thing because it has too much impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't couldn't say it any better. <laughs> and it's and it's a problem. The problem is, like you said, is that there's this is not something that's necessarily widespread, but it is widespread among the policy subset. And a lot of a lot of regular people don't understand the kind of the logical conclusion towards which a lot of these ideas tend, right? which I think is something that you do a really good job of pointing out. Um, you know, they just, people just think, well, I, I'm, you know, global warming is a problem or, uh, you know, I want to support the environment, so I'm going to support these causes without thinking about the logical end to which the, you know, all of these policies tend towards. Yeah, and I think a lot of that, just one final comment is like, it's really important for the right side to have clear goals. Like if I'm talking about, you know, global human flourishing, that has, mm. you know, that implies, okay, yeah, we want high environmental quality. We want low danger from climate. Like we want, but that's like, that's the package that we're, we're going toward. And the package mm-hmm. we're going toward is not an unimpacted planet or like a totally quote green planet. And that's, I think when they, when they have a monopoly on a goal that has any kind of good environment associated with it, that's when it's really dangerous because they have this idea of like being green or minimizing our impact. And that packages together like minimizing bad impacts, but also minimizing all of our productive impacts. But if they have this monopoly, people think, oh, if I want a good environment, I have to go with this minimal impact movement. Whereas if there's a human flourishing movement that says, no, we want to impact nature in productive ways and we want to minimize our impact when that makes sense, then I think that can really win. But I think historically, many of the pro-freedom people just reacted to the green movement. So it's just like, oh, we oppose what they're doing. And so it seems like, oh, well, you oppose, quote, uh, the environment. So that's a lot of the thinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let, let's jump, let's, uh, let's get into Texas. I'm glad we, we got on this because I am, uh, you have kind of distinct expertise on these things. So I'm glad we talked about batteries. Um, okay. So let's just do a quick recap of what led you and others at TPPF and other places well before these blackouts to be concerned about the trajectory of Texas electricity? Because I know you were already, it's not like some people, oh, this happened and then everybody has an opinion. It's like you guys had an opinion for a while. So tell us about that background. Yeah, and it's it's just interesting in Texas how um, going back to the days of when we deregulated our market in the early late 90s, early 2000s, um, our whole market design was created to encourage generation, right, to come online. So we go to this energy only market, we move away from uh, the system of regulated utilities that we had before. And there's the policies that we put in place basically are to socialize the cost, the, the grid level cost to customers. So customers in Texas are the ones who pay for transmission, who pay for essentially the reliability measures that we have in place already. Uh, generators don't pay for that, right? And the idea was that we want to encourage generation to come into the market so that we have enough, right? Um, and of course, when you encourage coal and gas and nuclear to come into the market, you're buying a certain amount of reliability, right? So you don't you don't um, you don't have to worry you don't have to you don't have to create as many reliability measures uh, on on top of the existing market because there's an inherent level of reliability that you're buying. It's far from perfect, right? As we've seen, but you're still buying an inherent level of reliability, right? And when, but now when you have wind, first wind, and now we're starting to see more solar come in the market, 
you don't, there's not a, there's not an inherent level of reliability that you're buying when you're buying that energy, right? And that's really the fundamental cause of the problems that we're seeing now. You add on top of that federal subsidies, right? That are pushing the equilibrium even further towards wind and solar. Uh, and you have a really distorted market, right? And then we, and, and so really the, the, the policies that we've had in Texas favoring, favoring wind development in particular are really just an outgrowth of that idea that we, you know, any generation's good, so we want to encourage it, right? So we spent $8 billion on transmission lines out to West Texas to bring wind and solar, you know, in, from out there towards the city centers. How, right? how does that, how does that Texas. get, how did that get passed? Because that's, that's like clearly, I mean, that's socializing the cost, but it's, it's totally for the sake of one generator. It's not like the natural gas yeah. or the coal plants needed those transmission lines. Mm-hmm. Well, and this was, of course, way before my time. So, you'd, you know, you'd want to talk to some of my colleagues who've been around longer to, to, that were back, you know, during the mid to late 2000s when they were enacting these policies, right? But the the basic, you know, my my understanding of it is that, you know, back then there was, you know, there was a lot of pro-wind sentiment in, in the Texas legislature, even among uh, the conservative set, right? And so there's, you know, there's this idea, again, that, you know, this is good generation and we want to bring it in. So we're going to, you know, we're going to spend money. Of course, there's a huge lobbying effort uh, on the part of those generators, right? And there still is, right? I mean, the, the lobbying power of, of, of that, you know, the wind and solar developers can't be understated, right? It's, it's particularly significant here in Texas. Um, and it's interesting how you see, and we could get into this later, how you see the effect of that in terms of it's not necessarily a partisan thing. Like there's some, there's some uh, Democrats in Texas that will vote against subsidies for wind and solar and some Republicans that will vote for them. Um, and that's been true throughout our history. So it's, um, and that's in part due to just geography, right? You have Republicans in West Texas are all in favor of wind because there's a lot of development out there for rural communities, even though it's bad for the rest of Texas. <laughs> and so you, you kind of throw all that together, right? And there was this political mix that kind of led us to, you know, building those transmission lines um, to, Content to extending our our corporate property tax subsidies to wind to wind and solar development, uh, chapter three twelve and three thirteen, then the Texas the Texas code uh, give subsidies to um, companies that are investing in the state right and the corporate property tax subsidies, very bad policy all around and it was extended to wind and solar um, during that time so so I just thought between of those two between those two things we encouraged again encouraged a lot of development. Yeah, I just thought of an analogy that I think works, although it may break down. So you just think about, you know, if you're a construction company and, you know, you sometimes see, you know, definitely have this in California, there are certain places where like workers will sit at the beginning of the day, like just looking for work. And then, you know, they'll get picked up and stuff. And you just think about, okay, let's say you have a construction company and you decide like, okay, I'm not going to have any long-term contracts for certain types of work, not going to demand anything, but I am just going to, I'm just going to take like whoever is willing to work with me on a given day. So I think of that as kind of like an energy market. And now if you have a large Mm -hmm. pool of reliable construction workers, so every day they're going to come, they're going to work hard, they're going to do a good job, you know, that system can work pretty well, like because that you know they'll be there mm-hmm. and so you'll just say like okay whoever gives me the lowest price uh i will you know i'll pay that or i'll pay that to everyone the details don't matter too much there like that works yeah. but then if you have it where you say okay but i'm also going to invite 
a bunch of, but, but you have standards of reliability for all of them. Like they generally have to show up, but if you then have, okay, I'm going to have a whole bunch of drug addicts too, and I'm going to come. And so if the drug addicts charge me a lower price, I'm going to pay them instead of the reliable people. And then on top of that, the government says, you know what, we really want to get more work for drug addicts. So we're going to pay you the construction company $4 an hour for every drug addict that you hire. So what are you going to do? You're going to rely on these drug addicts. And so what's going to happen to the reliable people where well, they're not going to be able to make, some of them won't be able to make money anymore. So they're going to leave. And then you have a construction job you really need. And then all you have is drug addicts and they can't do anything. And then you have just a few reliable people left. So that's what I, that's how yeah. I think of an energy only market when you allow unreliables. Again, when you have just reliables, it works, although there is some precariousness, but when you allow the unreliables, when you allow the drug addicts, then it is just a total, it is a total mess and it's a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. And it has been, I mean, uh, I guess the, I guess I don't know how I, uh, drug addicts, I guess is maybe a good analogy in terms of being addicted to subsidies. <laughs> right. But I mean, not, not that, not that, not that the people building these projects are, they're very smart, you know, and they know what they're doing. Um, and they know, they know that, you know, they're coming to Texas because they see how, how our market is designed to favor them. Uh, and so that's, uh, and, and so it's not, it's like the drug addicts are coming to this construction company, knowing that uh, this is a market that's good for them. Right. So they're, they're smart. <laughs> uh, yeah, they don't so have to be, they don't have to be reliable because you get paid the same no. for being reliable and unreliable. And in many ways it's cheaper uh, mm -hmm. to be, unreliable so okay so yeah, we, and it's so. <laughs> go ahead no you go ahead no and that's what i was going to say so yeah and, and it's always you're right and you're right it, our market is designed to be somewhat precarious in terms of um rooting out inefficiency right i mean our market is is based is we don't have any reliability standards per se um like any firm reliability standards right so we're our, basically our market is just designed based on prices if if things get too tight, prices go high, and that incentivizes the enough reliable generation to stay online, right? But when you have so much volatility in prices that are caused by both the the just the presence of wind and solar, which especially wind, which tends to be, we could talk about this later, tends to be not correlated with demand in Texas. It's almost oppositely correlated. Solar is better because it's more correlated with demand in the hot summers, right? A wind is almost wind. Wind blows in the spring when we don't need it. It blows at night when we don't need it. It doesn't blow when it's cold or when it's really cold or really hot. Um, so when you bring that in, right, and you have, um, and you have this, uh, I forgot where I was going with that statement. But you, you know, you bring that in, and then you you have this system that's dependent on scarcity pricing, right? Depending on prices to bring reliable generation in. What you end up with is you end up with a, a market where you have these long periods of very low prices and then these very brief periods of high prices. And so what we have now is this system where all the reliable generators are just banking on being there during those periods of high prices. And they lose money for most of the year. And that's just not so a very they do, functional they do market. literally lose money most of the year? Yeah. I mean, they're operating at below marginal cost for most of the year. Um, I mean, it's it's... Uh, because they, you know, they, they do have to, because basically you're not, they're either not generating or they're generating it so close to their, their marginal cost that they're, they're barely making any money. Right. So, um, 
it's you know because you're you're not when you're not generating you're not making money right so you're only yeah, going to generate you're only going to generate when you can when you can meet your marginal costs right you're not going to generate it for less than unless you're unless you're just staying online for a period of time mm-hmm. in order to ride out a period of low prices you know into the next day for example right um, but what's happening is we're seeing more and more generators that are only operating during certain times right because those are and, and the rest of the time they're just sitting there right? and that's what you have happen is this increasing this increasingly bifurcated market where you have this the generation that's only operating part of the time, and then you know wind and solar that's just blowing whenever it wants, right? So yeah, so I just emphasize just how much this is just all based on accommodating wind and solar. That's not thinking yeah. about oh yeah, how do we generate energy, low cost, mm-hmm. at low cost, reliably? It's like how do we have as much wind uh, as possible? So let's let's then talk a little bit about the the big blackouts. What's your so, you know, we have more information now than we did at the time. So sort of yeah. what's, what's your view of the big, uh, you know, the, the major causes of that debacle and then any lessons we should draw? Yeah, and, and you, you mentioned earlier that we've been talking about this for many years. And I go back to, you know, at least 2011, 2012. Uh, 2011, we had both a, a very cold event in the winter and we had rotating, rotating outages, right, rolling blackouts. Uh, that winter due to not due to us not due to a really a, a supply shortage but just because because that was like this time there was a lot of power plants that didn't operate well in the cold and and went off and we had high demand right so uh, but that summer so that was 2011 in the winter time uh, and that kind of was a prelude to something some of the things that happened in February in the summertime we had really extreme heat that was our hottest year on record in Texas our hottest summer on record and we really were tight on supply. Uh, and so there was a lot of, there was some changes made to adjust reserve pricing. Um, and then some investment came in. But at the time we were, we were already starting to get concerned about, there was you know, concern from the PUC. There was my, pre, one of my predecessors, Bill Peacock here has some quotes from that time, uh, you know, talking about how- PUC is Public Utilities Commission. Yeah, Public Utilities Commission, yeah. Um, there was a lot of discussion about how we were we were you know starting to be to be short on capacity, reliable capacity in Texas. So this was ten years ago, uh, but we really didn't do we tinkered with prices, but again we didn't really do a whole lot to create new reliability me- mechanisms to ensure reliability. Right, we're still operating under this belief that somehow uh, prices are going to be able to keep things in line. Right, even even in the midst of all these distortions that I just mentioned. Right. So we, you know, we flash forward another five years and we start to see uh, really an uptick in, in wind development, uh, in particular five years ago. And now in the last couple of years, solar. Right. And so we're we've had especially especially around the 2018 time frame, we had the retirement of several coal plants and a few gas plants. We've lost about seven and a half gigawatts of coal and gas generation that's prematurely retired, right? It's retired before it was set to retire in terms of the life of the project, right? Uh, and be just because prices were too low, they weren't able to operate. And then we've, we've had some new gas come on, but we've on net, we've lost several gigawatts, right? Of reliable generation. And, we're, and our demand is still growing in Texas, unlike in California, where you're, you're declining demand because you're losing manufacturing and stuff. We're gaining that in Texas and we're gaining people. So our demand is growing uh, and we're counting on wind and solar to meet that demand, right? 
Well, we get to February and now we're at the situation where we have demand that is going to approach not just the summertime record, but an all time records. We were, we were going that direction. Uh, so we were predicting, you know, weeks before, not, not sorry, days before the previous week before the event, we were talking about how we're going to be short on, we're going to have rolling blackouts. Like there's no way we're going to avoid it. So I want to, so I want to set that up first to say that this was an inevitable event in terms of having some level of blackouts, right? Because we were short our capacity. Now, the fact that we got that level of demand in the winter instead of the summer is, is the only thing that surprised us. I mean, my, uh, our director, Jason Isaac, he wrote an uh, op-ed in the, uh, the summer before uh, talking about how our reserve margins were really a lot thinner than they were than they were being reported as. We could go into that as well. That's a whole interesting topic. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was so, when I wrote about it too, I thought it was like when I wrote about California, I, was, I had this section about, yeah, this is like Texas has dangerously low reserve margins. And yeah, I expected it to be in the, yeah. in the summer as well. But I think it is important that there is just this short, this whole wind and solar focused market manipulation means a lack of reliable capacity. So there wasn't going to be enough mm-hmm. um, yeah. to, to handle this and not, and, and just you're, you're, you know, I call it like reliability chicken. You're just trying to get away with as, because part of it is, you know, you're trying to, you need to accommodate the cost of the wind and solar. So you're in a macro way, you're trying to minimize the amount of reliable power plants you have. But then the more you do that, the more you're actually relying on the wind and solar and the more precarious you are. So California tries to get away with this. It fails. Texas tries to get away with it. It fails. And like, you really go back to like primitive times where you're having hope about the weather. Like, oh, I hope it's not too hot. I hope it's yeah. not too cold. And these are the same people who think that like the weather is going to be, is just going to be a whole new category of bad permanently. Cause we added some CO2. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the weather must've been really terrible for the dinosaurs. Well, this yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine they all should have just like blown off the planet because CO2 leads to everything being terrible. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, um, so I just wanted to make that clear that it really, this was an inevitable event. It was the only surprise that happened in the wintertime, right? That we got that level of demand in the wintertime. Uh, and we would have had it last summer if it wasn't for COVID. Uh, we we kind of lucked out. And now this summer, you know, there's, we're, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, ERCOT says we're going to be okay, but they've been saying we were okay for for years, and we've been actually been very, very close to having emergencies each of the last three summers. We had a we had a level one emergency two summers ago, uh, and we've been closed in 2018 and 2020. So, um, so really, the the other failures of the 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 event were really just add-ons to that initial problem, that underlying market problem, right? So the weatherization issue is is definitely real. Um, and, and that's, but that really just made an inevitable problem, inevitable problem worse, right? Even if everything had been running perfectly, we would still have had rolling outages. And the fact that we lost gas supply and we lost uh, a lot of power plants due to the weather was really just what made it more of an extended problem, right? So, uh, so it's, I think that's important for people to understand that, uh, we're going to work on the weatherization issue, but, you know, we're also, it's also, it's not the underlying problem. And we're also not going to see, probably see an event, a winter event like that for a long time. So we're, if we focus too much on the weatherization, we spend too much money on that, on the gas supply issues, we're spending a lot of money on something that's not likely to happen for a long time. Whereas we need to go and fix the underlying market problems. That's what we need to be focused on. And so I think we're finally getting the legislature 
into that mode where, okay, we're past the initial event. We've done all the legislation kind of easy fixes, right? And now we're getting into the kind of the nitty gritty of actually debating market reforms. So, so let's, it's been encouraging let, let, the last couple of weeks. So let's jump into that. So what is the state yeah. of the debate on market reforms? Yeah, so you have um, so you have kind of uh, a few different camps in Texas, and um, there's you know the uh, one thing that's kind of unique to the Texas market. Maybe Louisiana and some other states with big petrochemical industries have this, but the industrial consumers drive a lot of the policy, right? Like they're they're huge electricity consumers. They're very they're very smart consumers, uh, and so they have a, a very big political presence, right? Uh, and so what, uh, so you have to, you have to kind of accommodate that big subset of our market, right. And whatever you do, and then you have the generators, uh, which you have kind of two different sets. You have the, um, you know, you have the competitive market, right. Where you just have companies like Vistra and NRG that are have power plants that are, you know, bidding into the market. And then you have a lot of, so you have in Texas, there's still a lot of vertically integrated utilities. You have over 70, uh, municipal utilities and co-ops uh, that still exist in Texas. And so they're more vertically integrated. Uh, and so they have generation and they, and they serve consumers, right? But they still participate in the market uh, because they, they, they buy power from it and they sell power into it, even though they have their own systems. Uh, and then you have the wind and solar generators, right? Who have their own, uh, have their own desires. So you have to bring all these kind of constituencies together, right? In different ways to get market reform to happen. Um, now the wind and solar guys, it's been interesting because there's been a proposal by Berkshire Hathaway to build, to basically drop a regulated utility on top of the market, pay everyone a flat fee to pay for 10 gigawatts of new gas generation. That's just going to sit there for emergencies. Uh, it's a terrible idea. I could go into, you know, why it's bad, but it's well, summarized quickly why it's terrible. Yeah. So it's basically the, what it, what it's doing is you're just dropping a regulated utility on top of the existing market without fixing any of the existing market problems, right? Any of the imbalances, right? That I talked about where we're, you know, all these implicit subsidies for wind and solar that need to be getting, that we need to get rid of, right? I mean, forget about the subsidies, just get, let's just get rid of all these implicit subsidies for those generators and make them pay their freight when they, when they want to bid in the market, then they need to provide some level of reliability. They need to pay for transmission and so on, right? So if we just if we just pay for more backup generation by charging consumers for that, then we're just going to see a continued continued erosion of the existing market. We're going to have to come back in another four years to build another ten gigawatts. Yeah, and another and, and another. Eventually, right? you're just going to have a regulated utility. We're going to have subsidized wind and solar and subsidized backup gas generation. Yeah. That's going to be our market, <laughs> right? So and so that's um, what. So that's the kind of reform that we're that we're trying to fight right now is all these kind of reforms that don't really balance the market, right? Um, we need to provide some balance to the market, and so, um, uh, but it, that has brought out what 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 that's been good for is it's brought out the debate about whether we should have do we need more reliable capacity in the grid and do we need measures to ensure that, right? So it's brought out a very good debate over the last couple of weeks uh, that that we need to be having. Uh, whereas it was hard, we were having a hard time on our own and with some of the other folks getting that debate more into the, the forefront of the legislature. And I think now it's there, but we just have to redirect that momentum into the right kind of ideas. And it's been interesting in the two main hearings that, uh, that have been on this bill, on this particular proposal from Berkshire Hathaway, the wind and solar guys have been almost absent. Um, a couple of their main lobbyists have not been there. 
Um, and it's almost like they don't want to talk about market reforms because the market's working great for them. So any discussion about market reforms, they seem to have not wanted to be a part of, um, whereas they've been very much a part of previous discussions, right? So uh, it's, it's been interesting that we're, we're really in this position where we're trying to triangulate, okay, what, what is acceptable to industrial consumers who are so price sensitive, but now they do understand that we need more reliability, right? So they're, there's, they're kind of, you got to work with that, right? But they're very, they're very sensitive to any changes that would increase their costs, right? And then, and then the generators who need to be compensated more in order to stay in the market, right? They need, they need more money directed towards them. And the way, we, the way to do it and the proposal that we've been pushing since really since before all this happened, we've been pushing it since last year, is that we need to make wind and solar pay more of their way. They need to pay more for reliability. Uh, they need to pay more for transmission uh, if they're going to come into our market. And so that's, uh, that's really what we're, we're trying to push. And we have a couple of vehicles that are moving through the legislature that are trying to you know, get at that. So we've got a long ways to go, but there, the, fact that, the fact that we're actually having that discussion uh, when it hasn't been had over the last 10 years, uh, except in the back rooms of you know, the PUC, PUC discussions and you know, the fact that it's now out in front in, in, at the legislature uh, has been a silver lining of the tragedy in February. That's really getting us to discuss this. So in terms of principles, I think one, one principle well, one principle of the infrastructure is like if, if a specific technology demands new infrastructure, that technology should pay for that infrastructure. Yeah. Like, you know, if you have, you know, if you have a certain type of construction worker and they need to fly in from hundred, they need to get there from 120 miles away. Like they need to pay that, right. They need to, and then they can decide, is that worth it or not? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, if they need to drive 120 miles a day, both ways, they can factor that in, but they have to absorb that. It doesn't make sense to charge all the other construction workers for the people who need to drive 120 miles to get there. And maybe we don't want the people who need to drive 120 miles. So that should be on them. And the other thing is just the default should be universal standards of reliability. Like everyone should provide reliable electricity. Now you can say, okay, there might be different categories. Like there's a base load category and what's called a load following category and a peaker category. Like, but they should be totally agnostic as to like the fuel type, like that should be totally irrelevant. So it mm -hmm. should just be, yeah, you know, if, if you, if you want to call it a market, I mean, if you want to have people competing, they have to be competing with something fungible where it's the same, where it's actually a uniform thing. So I, I agree with the direction you're pushing it in. And I know that you're, you guys are limited because you have all these competing interests and stuff. But I think just the key principle mm -hmm. is ever, there should be universal standards of reliability and anything less is just rewarding unreliability and punishing reliability. And that's that's unjust. And, and speaking of unjust, let's talk about, so there's this Berkshire Hathaway proposal and it may be connected to the following, but there's also this, you know, uh, the, I forget what they're called, but whatever the renewable group is, um, now I forget the name of it, but like a whole bunch of, you know, the, the banks and the digital tech companies had this letter that they signed to Texas basically saying like, mm -hmm. don't go back on all this amazing progress we've made. Don't make anyone pay for it. So tell us, tell us about that initiative and what's wrong with it. Yeah. And, and that was actually specifically directed at, at the bill, the, the, the set of bills that are making wind and solar pay for more reliability. Right. So, um, and, and they're basically, I guess their, their, their idea is that they, you know, they're again, and it's this idea that like, well, any generation's good, right? Like we, they, they're, they're kind of, 
that's what the wind and solar guys want to say. It's like, well, we're all equal. It's all good. And we want to, we want to, you know, we want to encourage more on the market. Right. And it's just wrong because you're not, it's not good when you're not paying for reliability. Right. And so that's, and like, I think it was a really good point that you brought up that, yeah, we don't have any consistent standard of reliability in Texas. Right. Now it doesn't mean that we have to have some kind of minimum reserve margin or a capacity market. Right. It doesn't mean that we need that but we need to have some kind of guidance from the legislature of, okay, how, what, what is the standard that Texans expect in terms of reliability? Like, are we okay with a bullet rolling blackout every year or do we want it to be only every 10 years, you know? And, and, okay, let's go design our market around that. Right. And right now there's just, there's nothing, right. There's nothing that, that dictates that. And so these, these companies are all taking advantage of that. Right. And, and the big, and, and the, the, you know, the, obviously the corporate, the corporate entities that are behind that letter that you're talking about, I mean, they, first of all, they want to, you know, they don't care about whether the average Texans have blackouts or not <laughs> so much. And second, they just want cheap electricity. And second of all, they're being, they're under pressure to virtue signal, right? Like they, they have all these investors who are pressuring them to buy more, you know, wind and solar. Uh, the whole the whole ESG movement that you've commented on so so well, and they're you know they're basically being you know pressured into doing this, uh, supporting all these groups that that have no uh, no tie, no basis to what's good for uh, it's actually good for Texans, right? Like these are not groups that have any consideration of okay, this is good for Texans. This is just you know this is what we believe in, so we're going to impose this on Texans. And I think that's really that's really what gets to the heart of what's wrong about those kind of initiatives, right? Is you're you're talking about people that don't really have any uh, concept of of what Texans want, and Texans need Texans should step up and assert their will at the legislature and say, no, we want a certain level of reliability. We're going to make a market that ensures that. Um, and so that's that's really what we need. So what should listeners to us right now like? What can they do to get involved into? push things in a better direction? Uh, yeah, first of all, is to, to follow our stuff at Life Powered. Um, I got my our website behind me, lifepowered.org, um, to, you know, to, to just share information, I think, is, is really key. I mean, there's, there's really not much, and a lot of this I, that we've been talking about has not really gained a lot of traction in the media narrative, right? Um, like you said, the, the blackouts, from especially from the national media, the blackouts kind of faded from that. Um, but I mean, we're really talking about historic reforms in Texas, and these are reforms that can be applied in other states, right? Like, there's really no example of a state so far that is really making wind and solar generators pay some of their freight to get on to have uh, access to the grid, right? And we're actually debating that now. And so, to the extent that other people uh, around te- around Texas can get can you know contact their legislatures, get in touch with us you know, get support behind these ideas and also to take these ideas to other states. Uh, that's really, I think, what we're going to have to do. Obviously, the federal government now is, is working against us in terms of going to, you know, push more and more unreliable energy on the grid, subsidize it, build transmission, do whatever it takes. And so the states need to step up uh, and, and make sure that, you know, okay, if we're going to have this pressure from the federal government, we're going to fight back and we're going to make sure that our grids are reliable uh, and not and not just uh, you know do like what Texas done and, and just you know say well anything anything goes and we're not going to care right about reliability so what are, that's what, really are the, what, what are the specific laws that are 
at least promising right now or bills that are promising? Yeah, so the, 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 there's two bills in particular. One is, um, well, so there's a provision within the main omnibus bill, good reform bill, SB3. Uh, there's a section in there, section 13, which has some language about making uh, wind and solar pay for uh, more ancillary services, which are services that are specific for reliability and, and also for ramping and other things. Um, and then also for replacement power. Uh, which is to say backup power, right? So making them pay for a certain amount of, of grid services and backup power. So there's that, there's a provision there. And then that, that provision, that's also in separate bills, um, SB 1278 and uh, HB 4466. Uh, I think 1278 is probably going to be the vehicle that will eventually carry it, right? So we're working on strengthening the language there. It's been a real fight to to not just to get that language in there, right? Which is like I said, the fact that it's there when it hasn't been in, in any point in our history is pretty remarkable, right? On the face of it. But we have to get it to the point where we're actually creating clear guidelines, right? Now the legislature needs to be setting clear guidelines. So that's the, really the main thrust of our activity right now. But there's also another bill, um, uh, SB 1282, that is uh, requiring wind and solar to basically any new generation is basically giving them, but, but since we're only building wind and solar, it's really just applying to wind and solar, but any new generation will have to pay a certain amount for transmission. We're going to give them an allowance um, for a certain amount, but beyond that, they're gonna to have to pay. So we'll pay for a certain number of miles or a certain amount of interconnection costs, um, but beyond that, they're gonna to have to pay for it. And so those are really the kind of the two main policy proposals making their way through right now. But there's also a counter proposal from wind and solar to buy more transmission uh, to set, kind of have a, a, a second version of the $8 billion that we've already spent uh, building transmission lines to them. And so we're also fighting that. All right. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad there's some, I'm glad there's some push in this direction as, as I've mentioned to you before in private calls, like, I think, you know, I, I, my, for my part, I'm trying to just push it in the direction of like the principles of, look, we need everyone, if you're going to have this kind of competitive market, you need to have reliable competitors. You need standards of reliability. We need to stop doing everything we can to promote unreliable electricity. Like even if you talk about ancillary service, too vague. It's just like, it doesn't, it doesn't get to the point that there's all this freeloading. And, and I think it's important to make yeah. the point that all these people who are, you're talking about, like, they're not interested in Texas. Well, I think, one of the main things is they are interested in getting this in being overpaid for unreliable electricity by subsidies and by the market preferences that they get and don't deserve. So I, I'm, I'm really glad you guys are doing this work and I hope you get yeah. the best language possible. As we wrap up, uh, we see lifepower.org in back of you, or we see lifepower.org, yeah. or now we can see the whole thing uh, in the back of you. <laughs> Where else should people go to learn more about you or the work you're doing at Life Powered? Yeah, we're, we're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, and um, also go to our, our main website, texaspolicy.com uh, for kind of more general information about what we're doing. And we also have a new, uh, the TPPF has a new on, uh, website called the Canon Online, which kind of has our own, it's our own commentary website. Uh, so we post a lot of stuff there what's as well. That, what's that address? Uh, the canononline.com. The canon online. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know you do, we retreat your stuff. I know you retreat ours. So uh, really appreciate the the support that you give in terms of messaging. And, and again, which is really important for us, I think, to, 
to share this information, have this discussion, because the mainstream media is not going to cover any of this, right? That's not in their interest to do so. So we need to get the information I'm gonna, out. I'm going to force them to at else. some point. <laughs> right. they, they've, 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 say, they've, said, they've already said weatherization and, and all the other things that we've talked about are, that's it, and we don't need to do any more, right? There's no, nothing more left to cover. Um, so hopefully we'll, hopefully we'll be able to change that. Awesome, Brent. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Thanks again to Brent Bennett for joining me. Uh, thought we covered a lot of interesting topics. I really, we got more into the battery issue and the kind of mentality behind it than I'd expected to, but I'm really happy we did because I thought we covered a lot of points. So I hope you uh, enjoyed that. As I said, yeah, it's been exciting to see Brent emerge over the past few years. I remember I met him just, it was just a few years ago near the uh, beginning of him getting into this. And he's really become a great commentator. He's very diligent, uh, very precise. Uh, I, I learn a lot from him, uh, which impresses me given how, uh, how new he is to the field. But I think he's just this very, uh, he's a careful thinker and he has a really strong scientific background. And I'm sure uh, he probably has just knowledge from growing up somewhat near the industry. So in any case, he's a guy to follow. So you can check out his stuff again at life. I think it's lifepowered.org. Uh, and then texaspolicy.com is the overarching website for everything that the Texas Public Policy Foundation does. All right. That is our show for this week. Hope you've been enjoying the episodes lately. Uh, I got a lot of good feedback last week on the Steve Coonan episode. Reminder that his book, Unsettled, launches, in, I think it's May 5th or so, and it's the, the Tuesday uh, after this. And I think that, so uh, next Tuesday, actually. And I think that'll be, it is, it is a really good book. And I think it's very important that it does well. I know it is doing well so far, but uh, get a copy, talk about it. I think it could really be a blow against climate catastrophism. And then uh, a real blow, I can guarantee, against climate catastrophism will be Fossil Future, which comes out November 2nd. I've been uh, doing a lot of editing on that. It's, you know, it's getting close to the end and keeps getting better and better. I get happier and happier with it. And very excited for you and the rest of the world to see it, uh, which reminds me, if you like our efforts at Center for Industrial Progress and you want to support the research and development, including the very extensive research and development that's gone into Fossil Future, as well as our promotional efforts, and we have a lot of big promotional plans for Fossil Future, you can become an accelerator, and that helps uh, amplify and accelerate this and other efforts. So you can do that at industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. Okay, my usual reminders, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. For my latest uh, talking points, go to energytalkingpoints.com or go to twitter.com slash alexepstein. Make sure to get on my mailing list at alexepsteinlist.com. And I'm on all sorts of other social media. Let's see, anything else? Well, I'll just say that my, my work with uh, elected officials is going well. Uh, maybe next week I'll talk about, there's uh, an initiative with some elected officials I've worked with that I think is pretty cool that's happening. So more and more trying to push the better elected officials toward more principled pro-freedom policies, seeing some good, uh, seeing some good movement in that direction and not a moment too soon. 
because the general movement of energy policy in this country is really, really bad. So hoping that certain contingent gets out of office uh, in the upcoming elections next year, which will make it possible to have any kind of decent uh, energy policy, uh, you know, make at least possible. Uh, so we have a really tough fight for the next year, year and a half with this current Congress and presidents. So I'm glad to see certain elected officials are standing up and proposing good things, as well as fighting vehemently against uh, bad things. Oh, also, I did a some new things I've done that you can check out. So I did something on the Rubin Report. I did a panel um, with some Dave Rubin and uh, two other people, including Bjorn Lomborg, were on that. That was interesting, including there was a kind of interesting uh, back and forth between me and the other panelist. You can uh, you can check that out. I think that revealed some interesting differences. And let's see what else. Oh, and I did an interview for PragerU, which is I posted on Twitter. If you go to the PragerU Instagram page, you can check that out. It was a 10, 10 minute interview. So last time I checked, it was 170. 137,000 views. I think that was one of my better interviews, just giving my overall perspective on earth and on fossil fuels and climate. So definitely check that out. All right. That is it for this week. I'll be back next week. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.